Hello, everyone. This is the Theatrical Mustang Podcast. I'm your host, Katie Woodzik. This is episode 54 with Sarah and Vasant Samudre. We sat down to talk about Promised Land, a documentary that they're producing. It's a social justice documentary about the Duwamish and Chinook tribes uh, produced through their production company, Tall Furs Cinema. And what you'll hear after my intro is some excerpts from interviews that they've compiled for the documentary, and then that goes into my interview with them. It's fascinating to sit down and and talk with them about the difference between film and documentaries and why they're so passionate about this project. I can't wait to see the documentary when it comes out. I wanted to do a little bit of shameless plugging for the current project that I'm working on, which is Adam's Family, the musical. It's produced at Whidbey Island Center for the Arts, and I am playing the role of Alice. It opens December 4th and runs through the 19th. You can get tickets and more information at wiccaonline.org. What else? What else? This episode is sponsored by Second Street Hair Boutique. Whenever I want to look fabulous, I visit Bristol, Hava, and Natasha down in the heart of Langley, and they always make me feel beautiful and amazing, both on the inside and the outside. And so if you're looking to get spiffied up for a holiday party, might I suggest Second Street Hair Boutique for all of your fancifying hair needs. You can visit them online at secondstreethairboutique.com. All right, folks. Please enjoy episode 54. The struggle for identity is not to regain it, but to be able to claim it openly. I know of no other racial group in the United States that has to prove who they are. Whatever a person claims to be, most folks just simply take them at their word. And yet, if you say you're American Indian, you've got to prove it to anyone, even the person on the street. Well, the treaty was in 1855, or the war was in 1876, or whatever. Why can't people just get over it? We live in the now, right? We don't live in the past. And I always want to ask people, what exactly is the it that you're wanting people to get over? Is it colonialism? Because that's still going on, right? Um, Is it the ongoing economic or social effects of political marginalization, um, economic uh, marginalization? Those things take generations to work out. So it's not over. Tribes that are less powerful because they don't have the acknowledgement, because they don't have the, and don't enjoy the uh, government to government relationship, are the front line. Of, of a battle that is continuing for the very hearts and souls of, of American Indians who believe in tribal sovereignty. This affects all of us, and those that think it does not affect them will be affected by it eventually. There will be some regulation, there will be some action that will diminish them also if given enough time. And the only thing that I need to show to prove it is to look at the history of the United States in dealing with American Indian people. It is consistent and it is not good. We have a very uh, great story to tell. And I think that we need to have people um, come forward and and uh, do things in the public eye that would uh, uphold the, the Wamish. I mean, after all, that our city is named after our chief. 
And uh, that to me is really important and that's really special because there's no other town named after an Indian. I mean, isn't that something special? We are the first people of Seattle. We've been here for a long, long time. Our ancestors still are here. They're all over the place. We have 10,000 years and possibly more of ancestors all over, all over the place. They're buried underneath the city, underneath the buildings. They're out here in the woods. <clears throat> They're the ghosts in the air. They're everywhere. Chinook people were probably one of the most powerful people, the, obviously the best traders up and down the coast, and that their ancestors all had relationships with the Chinook people, but because we're not fairly recognized, they look down on us. So there's, you know, a lot of emotions when we're not being fairly recognized tribe. And the Chinook people did what most of us would have done and said, you can declare we don't exist, but we still exist. And we're not going anywhere. They are now being punished for that more than a century later and being told, because you didn't take the unfair ethnic cleansing deal to begin with, we are still maintaining that you don't exist these are the people that fight, men and women. They fight for this recognition because we are not gone. We are still here. Recognition is a leap forward in preserving your people. It is the federal government identifying your people as a community that has existed, with which it has a government-to-government -government relationship. It is an acknowledgment of the sovereignty of your tribal government and that enables that government then to stand in a, against the forces that are in its immediate surroundings that have been declaring that we don't exist. Those ancestral people are still here and that they are the ancient ones. Um, a Chinook tribe down on the Columbia River, for example, Washington State, are also an unfederally recognized tribe. But what happens to all of their ancestors? It's important for people to not just focus on one story, but to know that there's like many different stories. Now, we're definitely not the same at all, but we're all still in the same fight, and we're all still fighting the same battles. And it's important for us to band together, you know, stand side by side, and overcome together. I'm excited to welcome two media professionals to the podcast, mm. Sarah and Vasant Samudre. Welcome! Hello. Yay! Thanks for having us. <laughs> so y'all are busy as all get out. I see all of your Facebook posts and amazing videos, and I want to know what you're working on. Tell me all about it. We are currently finishing up a three-year documentary on Seattle's own Duwamish tribe, and Washington State's own Chinook tribe and their battle for federal recognition with the United States government. Wow. I feel like we need to take it back for the context of how you got inspired <laughs> to create this project. Because we've talked a little bit about this before, and it's a story that maybe not a lot of people know about, and you're bringing this to light. Well, about Don't our... talk at once, kids. Don't <laughs> all talk at once, kids. About, oh God, I'd say 10 years ago? We uh, heard about the Duwamish struggle for recognition, which has been making news here in Seattle since the 70s. Um, in 2001, both they and the Chinook got recognized by the Clinton administration. And then the Bush administration came in and canceled it. 
What? Yes. Bush did something wrong? What? That yeah. sounds mean and not cool. <laughs> so, you know, they've been trying to gain these treaty rights ever since they signed them about 150 years ago. And it's been making news in the last 15 years because, you know, they had had it so right. briefly and then so tragically ripped away at a time when I think the country was grieving a lot of things that we were losing from the Clinton administration. So there was a new press cycle on tribal recognition. Um, so it, it, it was something that we had always kind of wanted to look into. Right. And um, we were able to see really great uh, documentaries that already exist on the Duwamish recognition, Princess Angeline by Sandy Asawa. Um, but we really just, we wanted to go deeper into the political aspect. Um, not a lot of people know that the government still operates in this very colonial way mm. towards Native peoples. They don't grow the budget for um, sovereign native states. So even though they have these treaties that are set up as sovereign to sovereign, when, let's say, a recognized tribe does really well and everyone's healthy and strong and having children like they should, they don't get more money to take care of their children or to maintain their roads or anything like that, like the rest of the United States does. If the United States is growing, we increase the infrastructure budget to take care of that, to make sure their, you know, our, our highways don't crumble into disrepair. Right. So, we don't do the same for Indian country. And it, you have Washington State just with a recognized tribe up in uh, Marysville trying to tax the Tulalip, a recognized tribe, for doing too well with their Kilsada retail village. And they're, they're doing so good that the government's like, um, money please. And it's like, <laughs> wait, no, no, you don't get to uh, wipe everyone out and commit genocide, make treaties, and then disregard them. I mean, the Apaches uh, just had their land taken away in a defense writer bill. I mean, the, the Lakotas have been fighting the Keystone Pipeline because that is, as they say, an act of war. It, it is open season on Native rights right now. And as one person who appears in our documentary says, the recognition question, who is and is not Indian, is really at the forefront of that. And our documentary uses both the Duwamish and the Chinook's journeys battling for their treaty rights to examine that bigger question of how are we still treating Native rights in this country because we all have to stop turning a blind eye to it. Absolutely. When you live as an actor, I'm used to, the script is set, you work with it, you're <laughs> done with it. Tell me, I mean, educate me about what it's been like to live with this story for three years and have it sort of unfold before your eyes, and I would imagine surprise you as the narrative is, is constructed. It, it certainly has uh, been surprising and challenging at times because um, rightly so I mean we're not native and we're wanting to tell a native story and so there's just that kind of complexity to what we're attempting 
Um, and it, it took a long time, really, to kind of get the ball rolling. Because um, with, you know, our first few interviews, it was kind of like, you know, we were learning a little bit. But with every interview that came, another one opened up through some kind of connection. Or it's really just a, a listen, <clears throat> respect, and learn approach. Right. Right. And you can't force your way into these communities and go, let me tell your story. I'm going to do it better than you possibly could. It's really just about making ourselves available, almost like we're just, you know, tech people, you know, renting them the gear. And, you know, we're not using the narration uh, in this documentary. It's all <laughs> Native voices. And we're really just facilitating the outreach of their story. This thing started at when by the time we had finished most of our interviews um, last year, about this time last year, we were sitting in about a three and a half hour movie <laughs> of just people sitting down and talking with us. And, and that was just like good stuff. It was like a ten hours <laughs> of footage. Yeah, and 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 it's it's been a, a process of whittling down what exactly the narrative is for this context of a you know hour and a half, two hour movie. Sure. How do we how do we talk about these really big, broad subjects in a confined space? And um, it's just, it's been a process of really just kind of taking out line by line to make it fit. Finding the script in a documentary like this is like searching for a needle in a haystack. Because um, everything's good. And every every person that we've talked to has... A documentary so many, yeah. Every yeah. we want to I make mean, a documentary on every single person we've yeah, sat down seriously. with. Um, <clears throat> Life changing people that we've been honored to meet, and so yeah, the last year it's taken us about a year and a half to really find the script that the final product of the movie will be, because there are just so many stories, and you know that's coming back to it. Ultimately, we decided that we wanted to go for a very political. Uh, movie of trying to answer these big questions of why should someone who's not native or someone from a recognized tribe who already has a formalized relationship with the government why should it matter to them that the Duwamish and Chinook remain unrecognized um, and that's that's the story that we decided to tell and what we've been losing our sleep to <laughs> <laughs> I saw you, uh, you posted uh, on Facebook your uh, some sort of calendaring schedule, and there were no blank spaces. And no. <laughs> I was amazed by that. Uh, so when you're shooting, was it, was it just the two of you going in on all these interviews, or did you bring anyone else in? It was just us most of the time. Um, we've got experience just, you know, we know how to use a camera. We know how to, you know, set up a mic and some lights. And granted, there's some, you know, mistakes and stuff early on. Uh, we kind of just, we handled it ourselves. And we felt that that was kind of a, Appropriate, um, just you know, again dealing with the material and the content and what we were asking, you know, a lot of tribal members to open up about. Um, trust was really important, and we didn't want um, to bring in new strangers and an yeah. awkwardness. We really, we really wanted to build a lot of trust, and that was important. It took us about a year, even just you know, getting to know these communities and being able to educate ourselves to a level where we could present ourselves as trustworthy, informed filmmakers. So, yeah, it was it was important to show up and just be like, it's just us. Keep it intimate. You know us. Keep it very intimate. Right. So, um, yeah. so we, we've worn a lot of hats on this. We're both the cinematographers. 
lighting, sound, um, co-directing, co-writing. He's the editor and uh, graphics animator, and I'm the producer. Hence why you saw the schedule. <laughs> <laughs> when will audiences be able to see this film? Well, hopefully uh, here in the Seattle area we'll be debuting next spring. Exciting. Yeah. Do you, ha do you have, the is the final cut like... Locked and loaded, or are there We're still close. some edits? We are very We're close. close. Uh, we have some great people helping us with some of the finalization. Uh, Mo Preventure of um, Jack Straw and Bushwick Book Club Seattle. And uh, John Davidson, a great colorist based here in Seattle. Like, very, very much a part of the indie film scene here. Um, they're both helping us take it that extra mile, give it that little bit of gloss on sound and color. Right. Um, and another uh, filmmaker, Ralph Helm, fantastic guy helping us with the infographics. So it's not just putting up a static map, you know, and panning over it up to down. It's not boring. We're, we're trying not to be boring. <laughs> <laughs> so once you have the product that you're super excited about, just again, because I'm not well versed in the realm of film and especially documentary uh, film. Do you submit it to festivals or? Yeah, um, so I have a calendar of submissions uh, that's pretty much already started, um, where we submit the film and notification dates range from December through next September. Um, once we start hearing back from all the festivals, the film goes into its outreach phase. So it's really important that we're not just, you know, in an echo chamber preaching to the liberal choir up here in Seattle. Um, we really want to make sure that this film gets a great community outreach around the country. And people can watch it and feel great feelings for the Duwamish and the Chinook. But we also want to make sure that we invite the local tribes wherever the film shows so that they can get up on stage and talk about their battles over sovereignty issues in the audience's own backyard. Because again, this is a wide sweeping issue in Canada, in America, it got down in Brazil, they're firebombing uncontacted tribes out of the rainforest so they can strip mine it. And what's going on is global, where the definition of indigenous is being redefined so that companies can take land and resources and often tribes are the people who are on the forefront of saying no and having the power to stop the strip mining the pollution of water they have federal protection so these definitions of who is and who is an indigenous it, it's important for our whole community around the world and so as we get into festivals, the outreach phase will begin where we'll begin saying, okay, we're going to be in Michigan. Okay, well, what tribes are in Michigan? What, what indigenous sovereignty issues are they facing there? Let's coordinate with the colleges. Let's coordinate with the museums. Let's coordinate with the tribe and try to make sure that you're not just watching a movie. You're getting introduced to around educators and community members and tribal members who can all band together and because next year is a huge election year, we can demand change. I mean, the indigenous vote just got out up in Canada just last month. And because it was one of the largest indigenous votes ever, 
really helped the liberal government get into power. And they've already started making great changes um, up there for Native rights. So I mean, hopefully we can do the same thing down here. It's, dear listeners, I wish you could see, your face is just like, it's like an Oscar award winning <laughs> moment. You are so passionate. This would, this would be the clip that they would play at the Oscars for like your best actress. But you're not acting, obviously. It's a very real acting. issue. Acting. acting! Thank you for the hand motion. Like, up in the air. Again, this is not a visual medium, but that's one of my all-time favorite Saturday Night Live sketches. Yep, it's a good one. John Lovitz as the actor. Um, I'm just so proud of you. I'm just so proud of... Well, I first knew... Sarah, some of you may not... Most of you may not know this, but... You taught me most everything I know about social media and marketing. Uh, that was the first time we met. That was the first time we met. And so it's just from that moment in the, that very small, intimate moment in Elliott Bay Bookstore Cafe to this. Rest in peace. <laughs> I know. This, you're like going to take, take the nation by storm next year. So the... The hope is that you're traveling all next year, yes? Going to different... Do you want to be at each of the different screenings? Um, it depends. There are a lot of great ones. Like, for example, there's a ton that we want to be at uh, next May. And they all happen, like, within a week of each other. There's, oh, like, nine that I'd love to be at. Um, so, again, we'll, we'll really just have to see who accepts the film and then make our plans from there. But next year, we also need to uh, start production on our next film. So it's, oh it's going to be a... This, this, it doesn't get less busy for us <laughs> <That's right. laughs> finishing right. this film. We actually didn't want to start with a documentary. Or we're, we had plans to get into actually feature filmmaking. We have a couple different stories we want to work on, but um, it just the timing was right for the documentary, and that's why we jumped on it and kind of postponed the the stuff we really really want to do we just felt this was more important when we want to point our listeners towards where they can get information about this project and all the great stuff you're working on if they wanted to learn more about this film and other things where should they visit on the internet HTTP. promiselanddoc.com and it's pretty much the same handle on Facebook. Facebook.com backslash promiselanddoc. Same thing for Twitter. Twitter.com backslash promiselanddoc. Bam. You can't make it easy for it. everybody. It's, just, it's yeah. everywhere. Consistency. Um, so I want to talk about the stuff you're really excited about that's in the future, but I feel like it's, it's I want to talk a little bit about some of the shorter videos that you've done for... Mm. All around, I mean, I see you videotape the Allison Bechtel event at Sal. You're doing event videography for all these smashing people around town. How does how do those projects then feed into your more personal projects? Well, when we first started making movies, we were doing more corporate things on the side. And we just found it was kind of soul-killing. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit, a little bit, yeah. Especially, I mean, you Salt was doing the uh, graphics and, like, uh, motion graphics. So, you know, when you see, like, a tutorial video and, you know, it's a walkthrough of the software, Vassant's doing that, and it's just... 
corporate clients, they, they pay great, but they, uh, they don't know exactly what they want and they can be a little difficult to work with. And it's just, again, it's not art. Uh, you're just like, yay, I helped you with billing software. Where's my money? My, my, <laughs> my soul feels so great right We're, now. Yeah, we found that we needed a couple of days to get back into the film. Sure. Or whatever we were working on at the time. When we're working around town for local arts organizations, we can go right back into the film. We can be filming that day and go right into the arts. It's it's refreshing. It feeds our soul. Invigorating, really. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, we've never been at one of the events, whether it's Hugo House or Sal, um, or even coming up and visiting Hedgebrook Retreat, <laughs> where we haven't felt like... <laughs> Let's go make art. Let's let's yeah, we're tired. Let's go do this cuz we just met other people who are doing it. It's it's Seattle has such a great arts community Absolutely. and we uh, you know, offer our services to nonprofits at a discount so that we can help make video an affordable option for arts organizations cuz again, I've seen too many writers and artists and organizations do without video in a very digital visual age because they just couldn't afford it because they were quoted thousands and thousands of dollars and i mean that's what we try to do tall first cinema makes the movies and then samudra media provides those digital services to arts groups and artists alike because we need to fund the filmmaking but we also really enjoy the people we really enjoy the work and we get inspired a lot, too. I mean, it, it, it really, you know, we feed off of the art that's being, you know, recorded. And um, there's been countless times where Sarah and I go into an event filming it, but we're eating it up because we're just, you know, catching on whatever's being, you know, performed. And yeah, so it's our privilege to be able to work in the community. It really is, yeah. Are there any events that stand out as sort of like the top two or three where you're just like I can't believe I'm here capturing oh, well, this we were just at Ta-Nehisi Coates uh, at call right. that blew our minds that was and it was really on par with what we were working on and so it's just kind of that was one of those things that just really really fired us up uh, and then God what uh, there was a poet uh, poetry reading well cheap beer and uh, prose uh, just had their 10-year anniversary this summer. And that was a fantastic was a event, event. Yeah. to be at. I mean, just the lineup that uh, Brian McGuigan and Stephen Barker put together for Cheap Beer. And continuously. And pros. Another one's yeah. up at the house that's tomorrow. Really yeah. enjoy. Yeah. It, it's a great series. And so that's always something that we feel Not honored to be, to be at. Not with Cheap Wine and Poetry. Cheap- <laughs> yeah, Cheap Beer and Pros, Cheap Wine and Poetry. <laughs> Yeah, I actually think that was the official 10-year anniversary was for Cheap Wine and Poetry, which came first. I love it. Yeah. Get people drinking and talking and and reading. It's just it's a delicious combination. Yeah, we're, we're good at our alcoholism and literary adventures here in Seattle. <laughs> <laughs> and you can quote That's me on that. That's brilliant. That's, yeah. That's the quote right there. there. You um, do you want to talk a little bit about the... Um, so Seattle's trying to be a city of literature. Yeah. And you interviewed a bunch of people about that to make a tiny video. Uh, what was that process, and, and how did that all come that together? That was crazy. That was, that was uh, well the end was. of June, being basically contacted and saying, 
we have uh, about two weeks before we have to submit this bin. Could you throw this together? And again, luckily, we knew a lot of the people that we sat down with because we've been working in the arts organization and together with Alex Wilbur, who's kind of been shepherding the process this year for uh, the UNESCO bid. She contacted a lot of people that we didn't know and we contacted people that we knew and we put together this fast-paced week of interviews all around town missed a lot of people that we wish we could have gotten but again it was just it was a week of constantly driving and then luck should have it the Duwamish got a negative determination from the BIA the week that we were interviewing the mayor Eric Reynolds of Fantagraphics Tree Swenson of Hugo House uh, all these people are, are lined up and, you know, the mayor is like, can you be at our, you know, office at, you know, 4 p.m. And the Duwamish are holding a press conference right before then Two in West then. Seattle. Yeah. And so that day we probably had about nine interviews between 8 a.m. and 7 p.m. It was... That was one of the longest days. Of one, of the craziest, yeah. one of the craziest yeah. days. And yet we, uh, I, th I think we turned around a good project. And again... It, Wish we, we could wish have we included could have a lot yeah. more people, um, it was the, and really hopefully Seattle will get the UNESCO bin, and we're hoping that we can release a long-form kind of mini-doc version where we can go out and get some of the organizations that we missed and include longer portions of the interviews we got this summer, because, again, it's just a lot of passionate people talking about the city and the literature and the art, and it's just, it, it, was, a, it was a very fun project to work on. Speaking of, since you have so much interview experience, what interview pointers can you give me or just people in general? Like, what are your, like, go-to um, rules or, or suggestions for a good interview? Uh, never have your questions written down ahead of time. I never do that. Fantastic. <laughs> High five. Um, I can tell. I can tell because this is a fantastic interview. Um, you feed off people's energy. Right. And if you make people answer the questions that you think they should answer, you can get canned responses. You can get people being defensive. Um, There'll be some times where we'll have complete, and this is one of Vasant's frustrations when he's behind the camera, and I'm usually doing the interviewing, is sometimes I'll go, mm, mm-hmm. Because I'm picking <laughs> up that sound. And, he, and he's like, I'm picking it up. But I'm thinking, I'm letting the person know that they're heard. I'm Active being empathetic. I, I'll ask a lead-in question that I really don't want the answer to, but I'm getting them comfortable. I'm getting them talking. Mm -hmm. I'm letting them know uh -huh. that I care about payback. But you know, I'm getting them comfortable. I'm getting them ready to get into. And once once I've asked a couple warm up questions, I dive in, and then I just I let them talk. And I, I really try. I hate it when I have to reframe the question. Because I'm the I'm the phantom interviewer. I was never really there. Um, my voice is not heard in the documentary all at all. Right. So every now and then I have to ask people to say, you know, can you reframe the question so that you incorporate, you know, what I asked you in there? Uh, and that that can fluster some people. So we really just try to let people talk as much as they can. 
and then go back at the very end once they've warmed up to us to ask them can can you repeat it with, with that <laughs> extra in you, what you said before was perfect you're let's wonderful you're time. amazing but uh let's just do it one more time. one more time yeah so now it, let's let's talk about the future and what projects are coming up for you that you're excited about you talked about this film that might be the next thing that you're working on. Can you divulge any details? Not, we can't say much, okay. honestly. Um, mysterious. I like mysterious. it. Well, but we can more. say that it is a female-led sci-fi movie. Yeah. Hell yes, it is. <laughs> yeah. Because that... We're excited about it. We're very why, excited Why it. is anyone not making female sci-fi? Sci-fi is one of the biggest box office um, earners at, you know at the movie theaters and you have amazing women who are just out there begging for sci-fi roles to be written for them. I don't understand why, you know, we're not seeing thousands of that, especially with, you know, Katniss Everdeen set to come back this November and dominate the box office once again. I'd really, really hope that she uh, knocks James Bond on his ass. That'd be fantastic. I hope so too. Yeah. (sighs) James Bond. Although I will say this, Daniel Craig, uh, just came out and said that he thinks Bond is a misogynist and he can't wait to be done playing with uh, playing him and that he'd rather cut his wrists than uh, play Bond again, so. <laughs> wow, Daniel Craig. Yeah. What cracks me up, my dad, my father is a huge mystery buff. Uh, read Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie to me when I was a little kid. And he, that would one of our one of the things that we bonded over was James Bond movies, and uh, he was all like, you know, Connery's the only Bond. Uh, and he's like, this yeah. Daniel Craig. He and I, I need to preface this comment by saying that my dad is 100% Polish. He looks like a Polish plumber. He's not <laughs> handsome enough to play James Bond. <laughs> and so I just hear my dad's voice whenever I see. Daniel Craig trying to look all suave and whatnot, <laughs> whatnot. All right, so unnamed sci-fi female-led movie project yet to be named. We have that to look forward from. Yeah, coming, we're already in pre-production on it. Exciting. And uh, hopefully next summer or fall, uh, depending on the outreach schedule for the documentary, sure. we mm-hmm. will be in. Uh, production on that and hopefully that will be coming out in 2018 y'all y'all are unstoppable uh what advice would you give to aspiring filmmakers what what do you wish that you would have been told earlier on that's a good question it's okay not to be successful right away yeah it, it, you good. you beat yourself up and writers do this too and again this is why Working in as many facets of Seattle's art scene is great because you start to see the commonalities, whether you're a painter or a sculptor, an actor, a filmmaker, a writer. We all feel like if we're not successful by 25, we're failures. We're, we're miserable. How dare we decide to live? I mean, we're just... We're all in the same boat. Hey, hey, Vasant and I... We're, we're big Lost fans. We loved the show Lost. So up until the final season, of course. Um, <laughs> like everybody. But uh, we, you know, we loved J.J. Abrams for a while. One of my favorite movies as a kid was re- regarding Henry, which he wrote the script to with oh, Harrison right. Ford. Right. He's, he's the pizza man. 
in that. Not a lot of people know that, but uh, that's J.J. Abrams delivering a pizza to Harrison Ford and regarding Henry. <laughs> the more you know. And that, that's in the early 90s. It, Felicity, late 90s, early 2000s, lost. 2000s. Then he comes back and he saves the Mission Impossible franchise with Mission Impossible 3. Right. Because Tom Cruise cannonballs Alias, which is also before Lost or right around the same time. Tom Cruise is cannonballing Alias and he goes, this is what the movie should be. And he calls JJ, I just watched Alias. Will you do Mission Impossible 3? Saves the franchise. Then he does Star Trek. And again, this is after countless scripts and TV shows and a very successful Mission Impossible 3. And we're in 2009, and Vasant and I are reading headline after headline saying, J.J. Abrams, overnight success. Where did he come from? And it's just like, he's been working hard at this for about 20 years. And people are probably going to say the same thing again uh, this this Christmas when he, you know, blows the world away with Star Wars. People are going to go, J.J. Abrams, where have we heard that name before? Wow, what an overnight success. Because... You know, he's under 50, and he's working hard, and relatively has a, a niche nerd audience, <laughs> but uh, when he becomes that mainstream this year, people are going to go, oh, where's he coming from? He's an overnight success, and the thing is, there is no such thing. It, that's what I wish I would have known, because we beat ourselves up a lot in our 20s. Well, you know, the other, the other thing I'd add to that is, um, you know, make sure you're working with the right people. Yeah. Um, the, the team that you're working with and, and who you're collaborating with just matters so, so much. And um, that's it, to me, that's probably one of the most important things is working with just the right, the right people, not just, you know, talented people, but the right people that you mesh with or, you know, even that you don't mesh with, but it's just, it's something that feels right about it. Um, that's, that's been really important for, for us. Yeah, and I think that's more true for write or for filmmakers and for writers is filmmaking is a team process. And yeah, I made one funny post a couple months ago when I was uh, map making for the documentary, and I said anyone who finds you know filmmaking so glamorous isn't looking at me when I'm writing grant proposals or doing budgets or today cartography (laughs) this is not glamorous and you really need somebody on your team to help you it can get very far from the art when you're making the art you can get very technical inundated with the computer problems the scheduling the budgets the the proposals the politics yeah and having a team as a filmmaker Having people who can just pull you back and say, remember what we're doing this for. Remember why we love stories. That is why I think we're still going. And people who I I dare say might even be more talented than us have burned out by now. um, Is because they didn't have somebody to come alongside them and say, keep going. I know submitting is hard. I, I know the, the budgeting is hard. I know all the politics of who to hire and who to work with is hard. Let's remember. Let's get back to the basics of why we love stories. And really, that's true for all artists. We all need that time to get away and say, why do we love this? Why do we start? I think that's a lovely button to end this interview on. <laughs> you two are delightful. 
absolutely delightful. Thank you for coming out. Before we close, um, where can our listeners follow you on social media to see the exciting things that you are doing? I am on Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram under the handle Sarah Samudre with an H. Sarah with an H. <laughs> <laughs> and I am not. <laughs> um, Vasan is taking a page out of Christopher Nolan's book. And while you can friend him or follow him online, he uh, prefers to immerse himself in books and really focus on uh, feeding his imagination and creativity. I'm just, yeah, I'm really, I'm checked out from the social media scene at the moment. I, I do enough for both. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There you go. That's it. That's what partnership is all about. That right? is what a partnership is all responsibilities. about. Well, thank you again for coming thank you on for the podcast. Us. Thank you for having us. I really yeah. appreciate it. Awesome.